Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rob Hunt. And uh, we've got, uh, this, is, this is one of those shows you don't want to miss today, folks. We've got uh, Rob Bleatstein with us uh, from SiriusXM, Grateful Dead Station, uh, from uh, his connections with New Writers of the Purple Sage, and his connections with uh, Pearl Jam, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Um, we are also today featuring a show at Rob's particular request, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes, uh, and that's The Grateful Dead from William & Mary College in Williamsburg, Virginia on April 15th, 1978. And Dan, I think you got a clip to play us right now as we get started here, so let's go with it. Brown-eyed women, man. That's 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 such a great tune. And rather than me trying to sit here and opine on something that I never was at, let's get straight to our guest uh, uh, here today, Rob Bleatstein. Uh, if anyone who's ever listened to the SiriusXM Channel 23 when they've done one of the shows, uh, you're going to know his voice right away because he introduces them, and we have him here today. Rob, how are you? I'm great. How you doing, Larry? Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm doing just fine. And uh, before I forget, let me say hello to my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt, who after two weeks away uh, over on the continent, uh, we have to remind ourselves that he's back. But Rob, as always, it's great to see you. How was your time off? Time off was great. I'm super happy to be back uh, on this side of the pond, but uh, nice to be over in Europe for a couple of weeks and got some good skiing in. So super fired up to be back and uh, really excited to have uh, Rob Bleason on the show today. Wonderful. So, Rob, what can you tell us about uh, the show in Williamsburg? Uh, it's Dave's Picks 37. You wrote the liner notes. Um, Brown-Eyed Women, uh, your request today. Why? What do you love about it? Uh, just everything about it. Um, Jerry's expressiveness. But mostly, the right off the bat, you could just hear there that the drummers are doing this, I guess it's Mickey, doing this really offbeat kind of thing that, while I will confess to being under the haze of a seriously big, large green blotter at this concert um, <laughs> where things normally sound offbeat and swirling and crazy. Uh, the tape wasn't on green blotter, so it's there. It, it wasn't a hallucination. It really was happening. And the yep. way it just swirls around, the way they have so much energy and the way it just picks up the show um, and you know the let it grow and deal that follow it are just purifier and this was just such a great night uh, an experience of you know i was in high school uh there's a whole bus trip involved there's a whole there's this whole constant yeah absolutely we got that whole story for, for me i just love brown-eyed woman because it's one of those you know sneaky good tunes that you tend to take for granted in the middle of a first set and all of a sudden jerry will start playing it and my initial reaction sometimes is almost to say, this might be a good time to go take a piss, but I never do. And about halfway through the show, I'm always so happy that I stuck around and listened to it. And he just picks it up and rolls with it. And um, um, it, it, it's a great tune. Uh, you know, I, I love the story behind it. And um, 
you know, that that's a song I'd go to hear, you know, Jerry sing any night of the week. I, I would never feel that way, Larry. Seriously? Brown Eyes as a bathroom break? I, I, I know. No I way, know, I, Yeah, Brown Eyed Women as a piss tune is just like, that's completely foreign. Yeah, no, that's the, like, I can't think of too many songs in the first set I'd rather hear than a Brown Eyed. Uh, no, I, and maybe I didn't say it right. It wasn't necessarily a piss break. It was just one of those songs where I'd hear it and I'd be like, okay, it's Brown Eyed Women. I wasn't reacting the same way as if, you know, uh, you know, they dropped something unexpected in, let's say, which I know they didn't do all that often at that point. But um, it, it, it still is a good tune. I, I love the lyrics behind it. And, and we were in Minnesota not long after uh, the, the Humphrey Dome, the roof caved in, and they were actually there for a show with Dylan and played <laughs> the song. And we all got a real kick out of that. So that was a lot of fun, too. But yeah. uh, I guess and as, far, as far as albums go, I, Europe 72 was one of, one of my major introductions to the band, you know, right when it came out. So that song goes deep with me. And also in terms of the Hunter Garcia canon of songs, that's like such pure Americana that just, you know, and also the, and the way Jerry would get inspired, you know, singing that song over the years, just never, never let you down. And the, the vial was dusty and the liquid was clean. <laughs> Or daddy made whiskey and he made it well, right? You know, that's, that's you know, to get that growl in his voice. and uh, uh, Burned like hell. Yeah, and you knew that he was just off. And I'm glad you mentioned Europe 72 because, although we will be talking about it at other points uh, in future shows, uh, this is the 50th anniversary of yeah. Europe 72. And that's uh, that's pretty amazing. That's quite a milestone. I mean, I know they've settled, c- celebrated those for American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, but, you know, I agree with you. Europe 72 was really one of the albums that, took me from just sitting around listening to them in my dorm room to really having this desire to go see them live. Yeah, I mean, I, I was super young when it came out. So, um, you know, got turned on to it through one of my best friend's older sisters. And, you know, at the, you know, it was just such a great point in time. You know, the Allman Brothers were like the biggest band in the world. And, you know, the dead were happening. The riders were happening. It was all good. That's wonderful. Um, really quick, because we have a, quite a bit to talk to Rob Bleedstein about, but uh, Rob Hunt, just a couple of things going on in the marijuana world that probably merit our, our quick attention here. While you were gone, the rest of us managed to get the Moore Act passed through uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, we touched on that a little bit last week, uh, last week's show when it was still uh, on the table, um, but now it's passed bipartisan fashion. Um, for the second time, I think they passed it once before in 2020, and this basically um, takes marijuana off the Controlled Substances Act. And I guess before we all start dancing around, uh, we're going to turn to you to give us uh, your opinion on uh, why it's never going to pass in the Senate. <laughs> well, being the uh, the cynic you know me to be, my answer to uh, to this news is DOA. Uh, don't get excited at all. It's not happening. Uh, there's not a chance in the world we're getting the 60 vote threshold. Uh, it, it's great fodder for excitement. It's great for retail investors to say, "Hey, let's buy into cannabis businesses." You definitely saw the, you know, the near-term pop as usual. You saw the pop in the Canadian uh, share prices, which makes no sense at all. It's like, okay, the U.S. is passing something potentially, and let's you know give Tilray and uh, and Canopy you know some sort of a boost for it. It doesn't make any sense, but already, you know, you've already seen um, any pop that we got out of it fall back to earth. So if you're a trader, it was a, you know, it was a great announcement. If you're a long-term holder, nothing's changed. If you're, you know, actually someone that's running a canvas business or, you know, a retail user of canvas, nothing's changed. Nothing's going to change. The only thing I keep hearing, there you go, Rob. The only thing I keep hearing out there, and I don't necessarily agree with it, is uh, the belief that once the Senate says no to more, that um, safe will pass as you know, sort of the um, the compromise position. 
but I'm not a believer in that either. So, no, I would agree with you. You know, great that the House passed it. It is symbolic. It means a lot that um, you know we're, we're getting some movement there. But until we see a major change in the composition of the Senate, it ain't happening. Well, I, I don't disagree. But the other story that we have, I think, is also significant and positive in that result, which is that now both the House and the Senate have passed legislation that will transfer the uh, licensing authority for scientific studies, uh, including with human subjects, away from the uh, DEA and over to the uh, Attorney General's office, and that they will now be the ones who will be deciding and determining uh, who can do that. And, uh, you know, hopefully one of the good results that comes out of that is we can actually have tests on real marijuana and not the stuff that they pull out of Mississippi that they call marijuana, uh, you know, and then they try to test. And, you know, without these tests, there's no hope of it ever getting off of Schedule 1. So the sooner they can do these tests and convince themselves of what we've all known for a long time, uh, the better we'll be. Agreed. If the uh, if the current AG, being Merrick Garland, actually does anything about this, great that we're going to pass things over to the DOJ. But you know, if you look at the effectiveness of Garland uh, over the last year and a half, I think there's a lot of people that have been waiting to see him do quite a bit more on a, a handful of things. The only thing he seems to have moved quickly on is you know the seizure of Russian oligarchs' property. Other than that, you know, I haven't seen Garland you know move all that fast on anything out there. So if we think that you know all of a sudden we're going to see the old Miss program end in favor of you know all sorts of new um, uh, research universities getting their hands on cannabis to uh, to study medicinal properties, start seeing more work done on CBG and CBN, eh, I don't know, man. It's me a while. Uh, I, I don't think Garland is is all that keen to do anything that's seen as controversial. I think he's tied his own hands on a lot of things. Um, if he passes on to someone else lower down in, in DOJ, perhaps, but. Uh, but again, you know, more wishful thinking. Um, but at the same time, yes, it's progress. Uh, I'm much more of the mindset that you know the industry is going to continue to progress as the industry continues to progress. Whether or not the DOJ is involved, whether or not Ole Miss is involved, whether or not you know the um, the composition of the Senate changes, whether or not the executive branch changes, nothing's changing the the flow of of cannabis progression. It's just not happening in a um, a, a measured way where a single piece of legislation or a single thing that passes is going to make a meaningful difference. It's much more of, um, of incremental change than it is, you know, a major overhaul at any one time. Okay. Well, you know, one of these days we're going to have a story that you're going to get out of your seat and jump up and down about, but, uh, uh I, I can't wait. I know. You know like, I, I, I can't prove me wrong. Like, you know, at this point, like, you know, it's like, if you'd asked me years ago, I would have had a much more optimistic outlook, but, uh, you know, I, I think over the last 15 years or since 1996, you know, if you look at it from 96 forward, We've accomplished so much. We've gotten so much done on this front, right? But if you're going to look at it from the time that you said, okay, the, you know, the genie's out of the bottle and we're four or five years away to, to wholesale overhaul of uh, federal regulation, I mean, it's like, it, it's like the, uh, the War of the Roses, if you remember that movie with Michael Douglas back in the day, where every time they asked the contractor when the house would be done, it was like two weeks. You, know, it's, you, you always think it's two weeks away. You always think it's four years away or three years away. At this point, you know, I never think anything's a slam dunk or a guarantee, and all I can say is that it doesn't really matter from the perspective of, um, of moving you know, the progress of campus forward. The only thing that matters is we're still operating in a terribly inefficient manner as a result of overregulation by the federal government. Amen to that. And, of course, uh, both of you uh, notably live in California. So, uh, uh, Rob Bleachstein, tell us a little bit about uh, your experience with lovely cannabis out in that part of the world. Well, uh, I never thought I'd ever see in my lifetime where I could, like, grow this amazing jar in my backyard and not have to worry about 
you know, cops coming in or somebody or a helicopter flying over. And the name of that strain is? Um, well, the whole name strain game it, to me is kind of a, a little bit of absurdity at this point. So I had uh, three, three in my backyard and just one was a little different, stood out a little more than the other. And I was like, this is the 122977 strain. That's all there is to it. Beautiful. And the, effe- yep. the, effects, the effects are, you know, on the same level. Right in line with what you'd expect for that. Yes. That's awesome. I love it. My, my question, Rob, is did it ever stop you before? I mean, I agree with you. I never thought we'd see the day where we have to do this, but it, you know, most outlaws out there didn't much care. No, yeah. So, um, yeah. It's, it, yeah. I hadn't done it for, eight, for decades. I mean, the last time I did it was in our backyard in Santa Cruz when I was 20 years old. But, um, and we were crazy. I mean, we had like 75 plants. We're just in a neighborhood. We wound up tying them down. It was, it was great. You know, <laughs> but, um, you didn't even go to Felton or Bonnie Dune? Uh, well, we, we were living in Ben Lomond, actually. Yeah, there you go. Okay, that, that, then you can get away with it. Boulder Creek, Ben Lomond. You can't do that in, in the west side. Yeah, um, but it was, it was nuts. And also, also back then it was like, you know, yeah, we named our plants, but we didn't really, you know, know what was going on. And God, if we only knew to keep those things alive and keep them going, it would have been something else. It was some great, some great stuff. But yeah, the whole the whole legalization thing, you know, um, it had to happen one way or another. The way California is doing it, it's not very, you know, they fu- it's fucked up. <laughs> you know. Well, neither is, neither is Illinois doing it right, so... You should have partnered up with my old buddy Dan Harder at uh, UC Santa Cruz, who I think is like the archivist for um, for land raised cannabis strains. I don't know if you ever ran into Dan, but being a, being an archivist yourself, I think you'd appreciate what he's done as far as you know cataloging uh, cannabis strains all over the world. But he's a he- oh wow, I would love to see that. Yeah, and you know, and I I just fully support the uh, you know the outdoor organically grown sun grown legacy farmers up in Humboldt and Mendocino counties who've been doing it forever. And, you know, I thought they got fucked out in the deal in back in the nineties when, when, when the medical thing happened, I thought they've always gotten fucked out in the deal. They're they're, they're the pioneers, man. I know. I thought when the medical thing happened, it should have been in the like legislation or whatever, that it was all going to be coming from these people. Absolutely. That's what should have happened. I agree. I mean, the, the legacy people are the people who've kept it alive for years and made it what it is. Yeah. And I did see just recently, um, you know, I'll shout out to Huckleberry Hill Farms and Moon Maid Farms and Catalyst Farms up in Humboldt. Um, three people that I know who do amazing things and grow amazing things. I, um, so they've just, I see there's some terpene study that just came out with the effectiveness and sun grown just kicks ass on all the indoor. And I'm an, I've been an outdoor snob from day one anyway. I'm <laughs> proud of it, whatever. Um, I just believe, you know, there's something about the, sun and soil here in california and the people who put the right love and attention to it yeah honey do you put me through college yeah <laughs> that'll help too no <laughs> question about it i think it was i think it was i think it was my college yeah exactly yeah, yeah i mean i think the whole Matilda river valley was uh was certainly what kept me well fed all through the yeah. early 90s i mean this William and Mary show was high school, so why not? Well, well let's talk about this William and Mary show. And, and, and before we even get to the show, I, the story is unbelievable. And, and I'm just going to give it a, a very quick <laughs> overview for everyone. And who haven't, so what? You're in high school and you and a bunch of buddies rent not just a bus, like a luxury motor coach no, no, to no. take you down there yeah, I don't to stay in the Howard Johnson's and, and, and see the show all for $40? Yeah. So here's the deal. My, my friend Malcolm Kaplan, who wound up being a pretty 
well-known audience taper in the early 80s. We're in, a, this is the, we're in 11th grade, yeah, junior year high school. Um, we all pretty much started seeing the dead kind of heavily, starting with the Palladium shows the year before, and English Town was a big awakening for a lot of us. It was my first acid trip. Um, so, oh, and I think, um, oh, people, someone did a bus to Rochester in a 77 that a lot of my friends went on and Malcolm went on, and that's what inspired him to do this bus to William and Mary. So um, the crazy thing is that somehow he organized it, he got with some company, it was a bus. I don't know how much luxury you'd put on it. It wasn't a school bus, but it wasn't. It was no Prevo that you're touring in these days, right? You know, right. So, but it was it was cool. But the, but, but but not a 1949 International Harvester either. Right, right. <laughs> and 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 also the crazy. You know, it was just such a different time then. I tell people about it now, and they just can't believe it. Or like, but wait, you, you went across the country. Your parents yeah, just let ahead. you go. I mean, the parents knew what you were doing. Yeah. Well, well, well. They didn't know exactly what we were doing but um that's the part i'm like that's uh, in terms of the in terms in terms of the ingestion of uh chemicals and things well no i get that but not even for one of them to like go along as okay kids see you have fun that's amazing well that, that that was just it it was such a different time and like i said yeah the fact that there was no adult you know the only adult supervision on this was the bus driver and by the time we hit maryland he was flying because there was no limits to what was going on once those bus doors closed and we all left and oh like you know we, we you know like we taped you know like it was a tour bus so yeah there's a microphone in the pa we took the microphone taped it to a speaker on a friend's tiac pc10 that he was going to record the show with so we're cranking dead tapes i'll never forget this like we crossed the maryland line and we're listening to miami 74 dark star into u.s blues and that bus driver had such a contact high. He had to have such a contact high by that. The highlight front. And yeah, exactly. And and this bus driver is just rocking in his seat while the while we're cranking that US blues. And it was that was just I wish I wish I had a phone with a camera then. Right. <laughs> or maybe not. Yeah, I think <laughs> Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. The key then is just to tell your parents, like, don't worry, mom and dad, we're not gonna be from the twelve tribes. Like we're just gonna go out and have some fun for a month or two. I think I think well for for me and my experience you know just my household whatever I think by seventy eight it was like it was it was a known it was a given it was like yeah you're not going to see me on Mother's Day yeah you're not going to see me over Christmas holidays or whatever. I, I realized in nineteen ninety one my mom had the the phone number four one five four five seven six three eight eight memorized <laughs> uh, just to figure out where in the country I was. Yeah. So, you know, people say, hey, you know, have you seen Rob? Where's he, what's he up to these days? And she just called the Grateful Dead hotline and be like, I think right now he's in, um, you know, Deer Creek. So, yeah. So, th- so this bus, this bus leaves at three in the morning from our high school parking lot, which. <laughs> I mean, that should have been a tip off right which, there. <laughs> which I found out late, I, um, before I did the liner notes, I, 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 you know, contacted Malcolm to get a few more details and things straight and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, apparently there was huge backlash like the weekend when we got back when they found out that this all took place in their parking lot. They were not happy. <laughs> and in terms of the Howard Johnsons, I'll just say that you know you have basically fifty juveniles let loose. And a lot of them seeing the Grateful Dead for the first time, and a lot of them taking LSD for the first time. I was just going to say, um, tripping their faces yeah. off. <laughs> so, um, I'll just say it was almost like you know we pretended we were in the Who when we were in that hotel. Oh God! Was, oh boy! You know it was. It was yeah. But I noted in there you said that you never got any backlash for that. Uh, yeah, I don't. You know, 
I I don't know if Malcolm or his parents saw a bill or whatever, but I think it all it all worked out. It's funny because the backstory on this um, for me uh, with having you on the show is I, I tried to suggest it a, a different date. I tried to suggest the the Cameron Indoor Stadium from Duke, and you're like, you know, no, let's do this one. My initial reaction was uh, just tongue in cheek, gonna write back and be like, whoa, no, William and Mary won't do. Uh, just just, just <laughs> steely, steely Dan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> And then I realized, wait a second, uh, Blissian's the one that actually wrote the liner notes in this. We should probably let him do whatever the hell he wants on this show <laughs> and, and tell the stories. So I didn't even bother to come back with the, uh, the tongue-in-cheek response. Yeah. Let me tell you, dude, anybody, dude, I, anybody who's listened to the Dead Channel and listened to this guy, if he wants to pick a show, I'm not arguing with him. <laughs> now let me ask you this, though, Rob. Do you have vault access? Rob Leitzing, do you have access to the vault? Yeah, I, I, I know. I'm like, I'm just sitting here going, can I answer this? <laughs> oh, 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 sorry, right. I could tell you, but I'd have to, you know. No. Understood. Okay, fair enough. Does you. Well, that too. <laughs> what, I mean, I, I've seen it back in the day when it used to live up here. And I and I did I did fortunately have see it once when I was in Los Angeles. Okay. So once in a while. But you were telling us before that your shows that you play are basically shows you pull out of your own library. Yeah. I think, you know, well, these days it's like the library is everybody's library with archive.org, maybe not in the same quality or, you know, that, but yeah, yeah. I mean, over the, and, and, uh, and I got it in, you know, multiple formats. It's like, I, I can't get rid of my cassettes. No, I'm the same um, way. Which is amazing because now it's like almost 50 years for some of these cassettes and they still and and they still hold up yes they do i, I did it and i really wish i never had i finally like just took them out one day i said i've been traveling around with these things for so many years and i dumped like 400 hours of, of cassettes and immediately regretted it like a week later i'm like why would i do that yeah. you know like i carry like, i carry around hundreds of pounds of books everywhere i go why yeah. can't i carry around like four racks I'll tell you, I did recently make the journey to San, UC Santa Cruz to check out the Grateful Dead archive down there. And oh my God, I was, you know, for a geek like me, in terms of that stuff, I was just having a field day looking at shit and files. Now, is that open to anybody or were you, uh, were you, did you get special access to yeah, it? Yeah, well, uh, no, um, anybody could really do it. I was there on sort of a research thing for this upcoming New Writers Project I'm working on, so... But I think anybody can go through their thing. Like I just, it's all up on this website. You can pull it up. You can see what they've got. What, you know, it's not exactly what they, you know, it's like, it's like spring tour 77, you know, receipts, contracts, you know, one or two, maybe you see, a, I found a guest list from 1229.77, you know, shit like that. that I'm like, holy shit. You know? um, but it's great. God bless Eileen Law. She saved everything. It's amazing. And um, yeah, that's true. So yeah, just going down there and seeing all that stuff made me realize I'm like, oh, this who gets this is who gets all my shit. <laughs> <laughs> this right. is where it's all gonna go. That's right. So tell us how did it come to be that you were doing uh, the introductions for all the shows on the uh, Dead Serious channel? Uh, God bless you, David Gans. He called when the channel started. I think they they hired David as a consultant, and he called me up to be part of his team so it just been been like that it's ever wonderful. since and yeah so we've known each other for a long time and we had david gans on the show not you, too david. far back and uh, had a great time with him as well he had a lot of good stories to tell us so that's very cool to know that you that yeah. uh, you were we're twitter buddies now <laughs> like since, since him being on the show like he and i go back and forth on twitter all the time but david's a uh, very very politically active on twitter and i love what he has to say yeah 
I don't do that Twitter thing. No, I don't either. That's too far behind me. So I can I can only I, I can only do Instagram now. I'm trying to wean myself off of Facebook. I can only do Instagram. Now, here's the other story I wanted to ask you about with respect to your trip down to the concert that I also read in, in your liner notes because the way you told the story made me think of something similar to me, but you guys were driving down the highway and you were going to pick up one of your classmates and he was standing yeah. by the side of the highway and you saw him and he saw you and you, and you got him. Yeah, we knew it was going to be somewhere in Maryland because he was like staying at his brother's place overnight at, at school or something. And sure enough, it was like at one point, there he is with this giant, steal your face or grateful dead sign or something some kind of sign and he's waving and we see him and we pull over and it and it worked no and, and no texting no tweeting no cell phones it's amazing because i think of it all the time people go how did you tour how did you do all that with i go yeah imagine trying to like drive somewhere and look at a map now it's it seems like the most at, at it, three in the morning yeah yes. it's yeah triple a trip ticket seems like the most impossible right. thing in the world to like to do it's like oh my god i'd have to like readjust my glasses now and, you know, how, how many times did you pull over in rest areas where they actually had the map of the state or the map of the highway you're like okay like where, you know where's the uh, where's the next place we can actually sleep tonight <laughs> that's a uh, like you know a halfway decent koa that is on this map yeah, no <laughs> doubt but in 1982 i went out i was at um uh the show at uh, syracuse in the carrier dome that ended the tour that was my second show ever and that's really the one that that locked me in forever it was just an amazing show and we were in ithaca with my good buddy mikey who had taken me to my first show and was always there to go to shows with me and the next day we had tickets to see the who in jfk stadium in philly so we all got in a car and drove down to jfk and then when the show was over Mikey had to get back to Ithaca and he's like, drive me out to this toll plaza somewhere out on the, on the Pennsylvania turnpike. And at whatever time, my buddies who are coming back from a dead show in Delaware are going to swing by and grab me and take me back to Ithaca. And at midnight, we drove out to this toll plaza. We barely had gotten there. And all of a sudden this other car pulls up. It's his buddy. He hops out, he gets in the car. I have no idea how we pulled that off technology wise, but I tried that in 1991, hitchhiking back or get, coming back from Chicago, uh, and I got stuck in Youngstown, Ohio for three days. So it doesn't always work. <laughs> and, and and just the fact on this trip, we we didn't lose anybody. We almost lost our friend Dave Fuller, but we found him floating in a tree about an hour after the show. Yeah, um, you know, That's no beautiful. one got no one got hurt, no one got killed, um, and everyone got their mind really fucking expanded. It's just it's like. It's like their train trip up in Canada, right? You, you do one time and, and you tell the stories forever. Yeah. I mean, some things, you know, I don't know why they didn't do it. Maybe it's just nowhere else to go. But also, I, I think William, and William & Mary turned out to be such a great destination. It's like, 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 like they never played in that room again. And I've never been in that room. I'm, I just want to go back there to see whatever. I just want to be in that room again. But they had, they had played William and Mary before, but not in that room? So, no, they played that room several times in like oh, 73, oh. 73, 76, and 78. But they never played, played there again. Got it. Okay. okay. Where were you living at the time? Uh, Long Island, Roslyn. Yeah, we went, we went to... Uh, the, uh, yeah, it's right here. It says on the flyer, the pickup back parking lot of Herrick's High School at 3 a.m. That's, but you see, for what you guys were going through, you know, on Long Island, like, you know, you talk about growing up in that part of the world at that time. I grew up in St. Louis. I missed that. That was the late 60s, early 70s in St. Louis with the Fox Theater. 
and, and that you know resulted in like uh, uh, the bar mitzvah story that we were talking about a little bit earlier when the you know that by the time I got you know 15 16 the dead weren't coming to St. Louis the Fox Theater was shut down and you know the, there wasn't that much of an opportunity to really get to go see him for me it didn't happen until I went off to college and then even then I was in Ann Arbor I was in California I saw him in St. I saw him in St. I saw him at the Keel in '81. Right, '81 they played '81 and '82. Yeah. But I saw my first show at Ventura of '82, and by the time I got back to St. Louis, I had missed that show, and then they didn't play there again till like '94 at the Riverport Amphitheater. Really? Yeah, they had a huge gap of about 10, 12 years. The whole time I was touring, they were not in St. Louis until huh. the very, very end. Interesting. They were they were actually supposed to play the Fox Theater in '86. And a week or two before, Jerry went into his diabetic coma, and they canceled the shows. They had two shows scheduled at the Fox, and I had tickets. The whatever it was, I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and I wish they'd skipped the Riverport in '95 because those shows were absolutely terrible. Well, you know, whatever. I saw those, and then I caught the two Soldier Field shows, and you know, we yeah, that, cool. that Black Muddy River at the end of Soldier Field. I, I never walked out of a dead show in my life, and we turned to walk out. It's just a good thing the damn football stadium was so big that you know. Before we could actually get all the way out, they jumped into a box of rain. And so how we, we, wait, how did we get from William and Mary to the last show ever? Oh, just, I don't know. What, what did you say in between there, Rob? Something that got me thinking about. Oh, I was talking, it's the Riverport Amphitheater. We were talking about St. Louis. Oh, yeah. But let, let's, let's go back to William and Mary because it is a super hot show. And uh, like I love the half step that opens that show. Obviously, uh, you know, we played a clip of the brown eye before. Um, but I think you know there's some other highlights in there. The Let It Grow, I think, late in the first set. It's amazing. Oh, my God. It, let, let it grow is insane. Um, the birth of good loving is just one of the tightest, snappiest. It's just kicking ass, and it's my favorite Candyman of all time. Uh, I'm I'm I'm, oh. I'm partial to another '78 Candyman from uh, from Indianapolis. Which one? Which the Market Square Arena. Yeah, uh, we covered it on this show about '78, '79, '79. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The okay. one where uh, there's only an audience tape that exists of it, and right when. Um, before he says in town, oh, that, oh, that's a close. It's like louder, and this year it's like explode into a, a much like just it doubles in volume. I love that Candyman. Nice, yeah. This this one, I'm just yeah. There's something about it, and also, I don't know. I, the shows that I seem to have tripped the hardest at are like these movies that are stuck in my brain. I can access yes. parts of it like really well. Definitely for not, for not having a camera, I can like somehow I'm there. That's like me in Syracuse, man. Anytime that Ico coming out of space, still to this day, I dance around thinking about it. It was awesome. Well, here, let's, in fact, we do have uh, a clip from the Let It Grow. So, uh, Dan, can you spin that for us?
Is there anything better than an aggressive Garcia on the Wolf guitar? No. It, it, it's like no. a mariachi, like, um, like it's a Spanish um, guitar on, on the Let It Grow. Super yeah. sped up Spanish, like, mariachi feel to it. That's awesome. Such a great vibe. Just a wonderful tune. What I loved about this show is, you know, in my generation, if they played Let It Grow, that was the end of the set. You know, you still got the deal after that. And that's, that's you know, two for one closer. That's great. I love that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it was, you know, people talk about their formula and whatever, but even, you know, we were just punks at this time, but we were spoiled punks and we were, you know, ridiculously stupid, picky deadheads at the time. Um, <laughs> well, you had seen them 10 times already, right? You said this was your 10th show or something. Uh, yeah, probably like that. Yeah, I, once after, you know, England, you know, I wasn't driving at this point, And so it was just just getting into it and just you know yeah after that first dose at at william and mary i mean at englishtown and then my second dose was at binghamton which was really really taking it to another step and then my show after that was 1229.77 for the three winterland new years that i caught and that was that's the life changer right there life-changing Wait, you, your parents let you fly to California in 77 when you're still in high school to go see New Year's? Yeah, that's what everybody asks. Well, here's the deal. So That's sick. Well, here's the deal. So so my mom... They let him go on a damn bus. What are you talking so, about? So my mom, God bless her, she was a travel agent. And so here's the deal. My thing with the new riders goes back to, you know, my very beginning in existence, baby, basically. Um, they changed my life when I was 10 years old. I came into the dead through the back door through the riders because... I had heard the riders. And just, Who turned you on to them at 10 years old? Uh, same thing. My, my friend Hank Schechter's older sisters, Nancy and Ruth, they were both, you know, they had Power Glide and the first album and uh, Gypsy Cowboy when that came out. And I guess this is all like 1972. And I will never forget hearing the Power Glide album, which was the second new riders album, the first one they did with Buddy Cage on Pale Steel. And I had never heard a pedal steel guitar before. I didn't even know what it was. But somehow that sound... <laughs> infected my brain my heart my soul my entire being and i was like whatever the fuck that is i'm going to follow that whatever that is and then i saw pictures of them and i was like i want to be a dope smoking long-haired cowboy in california <laughs> and you are so yeah. You achieved it. <laughs> so, yeah um yeah living here in san rafael but anyway I, I wound up meeting those guys when i was 15 when i came out here for the first time but but yeah so i i was already um Oh, so when the Riders played with the Dead at Englishtown, that was a really big deal um, for me, especially because it was the first time they played together with them since 74. So that was a, a big to-do for me. And it was like, oh, my God, maybe we'll see Jerry sitting on pedal steel. You know, yeah, dream on, 15-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you so, didn't think about it, though. Yeah, So, but then they announced that the Riders were going to open for the Dead on New Year's in 77 at Winterland. And that was like, okay, this has to happen. I have to be at this. And that, that put the wheels in motion. And thank God it did because that enabled me to be at 1229.77, which really fucked up my life. <laughs> well, that's I mean, the nicest thing my mom ever did for me was in 79 or, or the spring of 80 when the Who announced that they were going to play in St. Louis. And this was after the whole debacle in Cincinnati. So everything was mail order. I'd never heard of mail order yet because I had never bought tickets for the dead. 
And my mom literally that day took me to the post office, got me a, 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 a post office cashier's check or whatever it was called. And I got my tickets to go see the who, which at the time was the, the, the live music event that changed my life. But, uh, you know, every now and then your, your, your parents are there and they, they support you in the right way. So it's, it's good to know. Yeah, and I think I learned more from Three Nights in Winterland than I did at four years of college. That's probably true, too. About, about life, about life. So in the, in the early days, were you a, um, like a Marmaduke and a Nelson fan? Or were you like, was Garcia one of your influences on RPS as well? Well, on the first album, yeah, once I got more into them. But, you know, for me, it was about seeing them live. And, yeah, it was all about Marmaduke and Nelson and Buddy Cage. Um, and I love Jerry and the band. And, that, you know, the first, the first album is such an incredible piece of work that stands on its own. And even to this day, I could still listen to that probably for the six hundred thousandth whatever time. And I hear something different every freaking time. And, and I'm not a fan of usually listening to music with headphones. But when you do that record in headphones, it's, it's, another, it's another plane. And, and over the years, you had, I mean, Mickey was a member of the band for a while. Um, Phil was a member of the band for a while. I think Hunter was even a member for a while. Is that right? Yeah, in the beginning, they all came and went. It's really hard to determine, like, Phil may have played one or two shows with them or something. So, um, and Bob Matthews was their original bass player. Yeah. I think Hunter, you know, Hunter's the one who suggested the name, but a, you know, a great history. And I got to, you know, when I first came out here, I, I met Spencer Dryden right when I went to their office for the first time. So I was sort of got connected with them through him and that was great. And wound up taking guitar lessons from David Nelson years later in the eighties. And then, and got to uh, got to um, started tinkering with the pedal steel guitar years ago, and got to have Buddy come over here and give me a lesson. So that was great, and, and actually uh, got my hands on his pedal steel from the '70s. So that's in the right place right now. I remember uh, trying to get in to see a show when I was 16 that they were playing at the Fore and After in White Plains, where they used to play from time to time. And uh, obviously, where where at? Where at? The Fore and After in White Plains, New York. It's a okay. tiny little bar, and the new riders used to come through there relatively frequently in the late 80s, early 90s. And obviously, even with a fake ID, there was no way I was getting in because I looked like I was 12. Uh, but, you know, I'd stand outside the place. You know, we were basically backstage because, they, you know, they'd sit on stage where their, their butts were facing the window that fronted the street. So, you know, you're six feet away from the stage, and you could hear the music perfectly. But basically, I was a 16-year-old kid standing on the sidewalk <laughs> trying to see the new riders, which is great. I guess they were my first backstage experience and it was, yeah, it couldn't have been any more cliche or par for the course where it's like, I go downstairs, I open the door into Marmaduke's dressing room and I've never seen a pile of cocaine like that ever in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. One of my claim to fame is uh, sneaking into David Nelson's dressing room at the um, Gathering of the Vibes when they had it at the old biker place that when Ken Hayes is running it upstate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, going into their dressing room while those guys were on and doing piles of blow in David Nelson's dressing room and walking out right as he was walking back in. He's like, well, what, are you guys meant to be like, yeah, we're, we're good, we're good, and just kept going. And for, like, years after that, the people I was with were like, wasn't that, you know, was that David Nelson's dressing room? I'm like, yeah, it was David Nelson's dressing room. <laughs> so, well, well, here's the lesson, kids. David Nelson's the last man standing, so don't do the fucking powders or the booze. Keep, keep it keep it green and lean. No doubt. Tell us about uh, you've you've got an upcoming uh, uh, new writers project you were telling us about. Can you share that with us? Uh, yeah, I'll just say it's going to come out in the fall um, on CD and digital, um, and uh, with great thanks to David Lemieux and people um, 
in that organization and world. Um, got my hands on a multi-track from Europe 72, which coming across our new riders multi-track of a live show is pretty hard to do, pretty rare. Um, thought we had all of them, but this one uh, snuck by and thankfully got our hands on it. It's amazing. Uh, it's going to be mixed and mastered fairly soon and look for it in the fall. Just in, in, in time to get it out to say it's the 50th anniversary of it. Okay. And um, so now we've uh, we've got a little clip from that as well. Uh, you want to give us a quick little intro into what we're going to listen to here? Well, th- this won't, this is not a clip from that because it's yet to come out. But here's a clip I can give you from uh, the field trip, which we released a couple of years ago from the Springfield Creamery when they opened for the dead at the legendary show for uh, Chuck Kesey's Creamery up there. Um, you know, the legendary Sunshine Daydream show. And uh, let's play a little. Yeah. So uh, and, and this was a multi-track, too, as well, that we got our hands on, came out of the Grateful Dead vault. Um, and Stephen Barncard did the mix for us. And it's pretty hot. It was a, And it's such a great, it's a crazy day. Ken Babs does these stage announcements in the middle of it and got to release this on vinyl as well. So you can find it. it sounds great out there. Excellent. And, uh, well, Dan, why don't you yeah, spin that for us really quick and we'll listen to that. Yeah. Here's, this, this is uh, running back to you from the field trip, new riders of the purple seed. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's great stuff, you know, and it's important, I think. um, We do spend most of our time very focused on the dead. Uh, We have from time to time, uh, you know, veered off and done a few Jerry shows and things like that. Uh, But the new writers, there's there's this symbiotic relationship with them and the dead that goes back to, you know, to the really to the early formative years and um, you know, to the very beginning. Yeah, I th- so before the be- before the beginning. Before the beginning, and it's 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 an important relationship to know and understand, and it's one I've I've always been interested in, and I and I you know one of the things I loved about the Jerry shows was you know when he would play a lot of uh, you know tunes that would just cross over between them and Old and in the Way, and any one of these bands on any given night could be playing it, and uh, those were great tunes. And you know, Rob uh, Hunt and I have often talked about. How on any given night, you know, we would have been just as happy to go see, you know, the Jerry Garcia band. And one of the reasons is because we could get some of these tunes that the dead typically weren't playing. Yeah. Love the Jerry band. Shout out to shout out to my favorite cover band, Jerry's Middle Finger. <laughs> That's great. They are. They're, they're, they're on fire. Are they? Yeah. Catch them if you can. I will. I will. That was the, the first, my very first dead show ever. My One of my lasting images is this guy in front of us who was so trashed he could barely stand up. And he held his right arm out at some angle with his middle finger curled back and just kept going, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. And I was like asking my buddy, what the hell is he doing? He's like, oh, Garcia lost his middle finger years ago. I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, that, those are the little lessons you learn when you start going to see uh, shows and stuff. And then they just stick with you. So... That's very cool, too. Well, you probably didn't get to see too many Jerry Band shows if you weren't living in California. 
No, I only saw, I mean, I, I saw a handful. I saw him uh, a couple of times. He would come and he would play uh, in the East St. Louis area, just on the other side of the river at a small little club there called Stages. And then I saw him do a show in Chicago in 84, I want to say. He did a twin bill with uh, Frank Zappa. And they were touring, and each night they would flip a coin to see who opened, and they played at the UIC Pavilion. And we got to see the Jerry Band and Zappa. It was a very cool evening. Wow. Didn't know about that. A lot of fun. Where I, on the other hand, would fly into every Warfield show there was for the last couple of years. Uh, even at the time of living in Salt Lake, there was a super cheap airline. It was 39 bucks each way, and I didn't miss a Garcia Band show at the Warfield for three years. So even not living in California, if you were, if you were um, on your game, you could pull it off. Yeah, those are good, good times. Let's let's uh, let's turn back to uh, William and Mary for a minute. Um, it, you know, again, in, in reading the liner notes, I've become an expert on this show. Uh, I, but I noticed you mentioned in there uh, that Bruce Hornsby and John Molo were at the show. Yeah. How, how did you know that, or did you learn that later? Oh, I learned it later. Okay. I mean, Bruce Horn. I, I think if you knew, the only way of knowing Bruce Hornsby at the time of the gig is to know him personally as a. He, he was from Virginia, know. wasn't he? He, he, yeah, he's from Williamsburg, I believe. Oh, I didn't know he was from Williamsburg. So this was a home show for him. I think he's from Williamsburg, actually. I think, it, or real close by. I think he's from real close by. Um, yeah, but I, 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 you know, as part of, you no, know, I. Of course, he came to my mind, and I knew that he had seen William and Mary shows in the past, but I wasn't sure if he saw this one. So I looked into it to confirm that, and indeed he did. And then Mola told me he was there as well. Now, did the two of them go together, or they just both happened to be there? Uh, no, they went together. They went together because they were they were in a band together. That's back so then. funny. I, I I guess I yeah. never realized that early connection between between the two of them. I I, I love John Mola, you know. And, and I we uh, this past October I saw Phil and the Quintet out at the Cap. And I, I, Molo is just such an integral part of that. I love him. He's really, really. Yeah, he's great. And I, and I love Bruce. I love Bruce's playing. I love Bruce's, you know, tenure in the dead. Those, I thought that was just such a great revitalization for them for a brief little window. Great, time, great sound. And, you know, he just lives the music. So it's so perfect. And he just inspired Jerry. You know so much. Oh, it was it was lovely to see. I, I was I was I was sorry to see him go. You know, I, I Vince had to get off his training wheels and do it, and he did. But it was really fun having Hornsby around. Although I remember reading a story about how Hornsby said that he finally got tired of it too because like he, they play Old Valley Road and you know Jerry would forget half of the tune and he'd forget you know all this uh, the you know the different whatever they call it switches or where they you know on the music on stage and and um and he said yeah you know it was hard to get him to, to rehearse and all this kind of stuff but hey either way he was a great force and uh, he really made it a lot of fun for a while um so uh, i know that one of the other tunes you like from this show uh, is the morning dew uh, rob and i uh, just a couple of weeks ago, did a show uh, that featured Morning Dew almost entirely, and we, we played a bunch of different dews. We didn't play this one, but we're going to uh, play a little piece of it right now. Uh, and, and we were talking about it in the context of the song, you know, being about a post-apocalyptic world. And, you know, here we are in, uh, you know, actually at war with a crazy man who every now and then drops hints about, you know, possibly taking us to that very position. So, um, you know, for us... Wait, there, there's a few of them. Well, I, I, there is. I, I'm just talking about the idiot who started the war right now in particular, you know, and, and his comments about we won't hesitate to go to, you know, high alert on our nuclear weapons or whatever. But, um, but be that as it may, I know that uh, this was a good do. And I think, as I recall from your notes, that uh, it, 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 it just was happenstance that you, you were there that night because there were, they hadn't played it at all in 78 before and they didn't play it again 
and, and until uh, a little bit later. Yeah. For another year. Another year at the Cap Center. Yeah, I don't, you know, um, I'm not even sure at that point in our in time of seeing shows and stuff if we, if Morning Dew had the intenseness in terms of like it being played and it being accepted and appreciated and stuff as it does, you know, later on, where it's like, you know, it's a, it was a really big deal when you got to see it. Um, it was kind of a big deal at night, but um, I'm just trying to re- put myself in that place. I'm just saying uh, it became a much more important song as your deadhead dumb progressed over the years and you've oh, you know, absolutely. Real, and you realize what the song was about and it also you know you would feel feel that intenseness from from Jerry as he would deliver it and it, you know and and he delivered you know 78 they're just they just got this energy they just got this you know yep passions the passion's still burning it burned out pretty little little long, little while after but yep we, we got a clip of this too dan go and, and and play that for us really quick if you would please If I didn't know the importance of it before, and I sure knew it by the end of it. But I'm thinking back now, it's like, I guess we did really know the ado and experience it really well because we lived a dead movie for so many times up to right, that point right. because that came out a yep. year before and it was showing at midnight at the mini cinema every freaking week. I must have seen it like 40 times. <laughs> so Yep. Yeah, and they got a good doing there too. So yeah, it's it's just a great tune. It's 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 wonderful to listen to. And one of the things, you know, you talk about appreciation of it. You know, for me, I think where the appreciation really started to come in was when I realized that, you know, of all of the things, you know, in their in their songbook from back in the late sixties and early seventies, do was one of the ones, do the other one, right? Just a handful of tunes that survived throughout the entire lifetime of the band. And you know, mm-hmm. do was always great. There was never a time I think where people, you know, took it for granted. And as as time went on, it just got better and better. And it was always just a gift. You know, you'd be the show, and, and I know you and I were joking a minute ago, and and Rob Hunt and I have always joked, you know, that every time you were hoping you'd get a do, you'd wind up with a Black Peter, um, which which built up a little resentment against Black Peter for a while. But uh, at the end of the day, we all love that now too. But yeah, but if you could be there and just you know, even an average show could you know, a, a great do could really take it to another level. Always, always could be a lifesaver. Yep, for sure. Now, something else about that show that I noticed, and and I I have to admit, you know, this is just me, uh, you know, jumping on the bus a little bit later and and not having that experience. But I liked in your in your your story about the concert, about you know, you were you were kind of discussing how at this time, you know, Rhythm Devils was just kind of you know coming onto the scene. They hadn't done the full space drums thing yet. 
Um, but what really what caught me about that was your 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 line about how all of the band members were going back there and participating on the drum kit with uh, Mickey and Bill. And and I I I can't even imagine watching Jerry go back there and bang on the drums for a few minutes. It was wild, and, and that was the that was the this tour was the debut of that. You know, it was like it was their whole you know I call it this percussion space madness thing because it was you know I I don't know if the Beast was built for that or built right after that, but it was not just the Beast. It was just so much there, you know, rototons and steel drums and marimbas, and just all this stuff here, and basically the freaking kitchen sink and they're banging on pots and pans and gas cans and all this shit and yeah there would there would be different different nights where you know garcia would be up there weird be up there keith keith and donna be up there you know i i got a picture of keith playing you know marimbas back there um in 70 in springfield in 79 that's so funny so I love that, and, and it was and it was cool. To, you know, it was like you know maybe if if you were going to every show at that point in time, I could see where maybe you're getting a little nuts with it. But it was it was an experience, you know, and and it it was definitely the the beginning of what they labeled drums and fading into that because in '77 they were doing I would just call them these little drum duets. They might do this little you know no more than four minute thing together just on their regular drum kits. And then they decided to go full fucking hog on this thing in '78, and then they like sort of then they sort of scaled it down and built the beast and took out all the other things they would take out, and then it became sort of that regimented regular thing where it'd be drum space in between the shows. So. Jerry was probably only too happy to get off stage and go take a piss, it's not, not be out there for the whole thing. But yeah. um, I mean, I always, I you know, I, I can't say that I always like drums, but on a good night, I really like drums. But, but it, but it also but it also brought on this this segment ritual at the show where it was like you would either do your spinning in the lobby or you'd go take a leak or you'd go get a drink or you'd finally sit down for twenty seconds or you'd go see friends or go smoke a bowl or whatever. Absolutely. So it was definitely it was definitely you know or it was like yeah there's pre cell phone pre texting whatever but it'd be like hey let's meet at the board at drums right something exactly. like that exactly know? right it was just it was a it was a good place you know almost like built in to catch your breath is the way i used to think it unless of course you were really dosed and you weren't sitting down during drums and you weren't catching your breath at all but uh yeah or if you're right or if you're right up front and you're like i'm not fucking leaving oh no right of course <laughs> that, that was the whole that, i mean i was always fascinated about that mentality of the people who had to be right in the very front row and i once at Alpine Valley, I, I, my cousin got me seats to, to sit in the front row, and it was a tremendous experience. But, you know, it, it wasn't that I was worried about, you know, being crushed by the crowd, but just what the fuck do I do if I have to take a piss? How do I get out? And for God's sakes, how am I ever going to get back in? We're, we're going to name this episode Larry Takes a Piss. Yeah, good, it's great. Been, been, the, been the theme of, uh, of, of your whole show today, Larry. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're, you're br- yeah. Be thinking of you during yeah. my next brown eyed women. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, guys, I hate to say it, I've, I've got to jump. Uh, unfortunately, I have a commitment I couldn't get out of today. But, Rob, I want to say thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And I, I wish I could stay for the rest of the episode. But it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So thanks so much. And please come back ah, and you're see welcome. us again. Ah, my, anytime. And Rob Hunt, thank you. We'll talk to you next week, buddy. Glad to have you back. So before we, before we knock off here, um, Rob, the, the other area that I just want to spin into really quick is your relationship with Pearl Jam, because I know you've got a pretty tight relationship with that band, and you've done a lot of work with them over the years. Can you tell us about that a little? Uh, just been a huge... They, uh, they basically became my Grateful Dead in 1993. 
totally by accident. Just got taken to a show. I mean, was starting to listen to them a little bit. Um, got taken to a show. Could not believe what I fucking saw and heard. Went three days later at the Greek Theater. Couldn't believe it again. Blew off some dead shows in Seattle. And I mean, blew off dead shows in LA and um, San Diego in December 93 to go see Pearl Jam up in Seattle in their hometown in a small venue before it got too crazy. And um, that that did the deal i was like okay i'll go anywhere to see these guys anytime you know so that became that and then um um i was doing internet radio for many years in the mid in the aught i guess they call it the aughts the 2000s um right um right. so when that when that came crashing down in the crash of 0809 um i was just like left with the okay what's next and i was like I got to work with Pearl Jam somehow. I got to figure this out. So um, I pitched them on doing a radio station on their website, which they didn't have. So I was like, well, what could I possibly do for this band that's got everything in the world, doesn't need, you know, you know, what could I possibly? So I just reached out and I was like, you guys need a radio station on your website. And at the point, at that point in time, it wasn't a priority for them, whatever. But they were like, well, let's keep talking about it. If anyone's the right guy to do it, you're the guy to do it. Um, and then a year later, we figured out how to make it work, and that was in May of 2010. So that's still going on their website. And then it was um, so that started first, um, called Pearl Jam Radio. But then Sirius came on board six months later in October of 2010, and I was already in the Sirius fold at the Dead Channel and was also working with Pearl Jam, so it just seemed natural that I would help build that channel. So kind of got that thing off the ground and, you know, oversaw almost every ton of aspects of it, um, you know, for the first couple of years, then just have kind of relegated back into doing, just being producer and host and stuff like that for the channel. So it works great. Excellent. Well, we, you know, since we get a guy like you on the show, we even have a Pearl Jam clip uh, set to listen to. And this is from the uh, uh, July 19th, 2013 show at Wrigley Field. Uh, it had the infamous two and a half hour rain delay and had them playing until two in the morning. Dan, go ahead and spin this for us really quick. I'll just mention there for the deadheads out there that um, you picked a, a show that is one of the very few that they've never officially released, where they do officially release all their shows mixed in amazing quality. And um, like the dead, there's they never play the same show twice. So that's how you can see a million shows. And I look forward to this tour coming up. I'll be seeing my 300th in Fresno. 
That's amazing. Well, I mean, that was, that was you know, again, um, I, I was taken there by uh, uh, my good friend Alex, who's married to my good friend Andy, who, of course, is the connection that got you onto this show in the first place. And, uh, you know, Lightning Bolt, it was, it was a relatively new tune at the time, I think. Um, but there was just so much that night that that really turned me. I mean, I had seen Pearl Jam before, but that, that was a, a, a big night for me. And, and you know, one of the things that I, I love when some of these bands do is they dip back into the... Uh, the vault a little bit and they give you know new meaning to tunes i listened to when i was growing up and at one point during this show mccready does a just a very very short takeoff on uh the van halen tune eruption and you know it just does an amazing guitar solo up on the stage that just blew me away i was just couldn't have been more impressed by it yeah that was quite that whole wrigley thing was quite the experience you know it was a, a huge thing for ed growing up outside of chicago being a cubs fan his whole life um oh you yeah know, so it was it was super emotional. I mean, bringing out Ernie Banks, it was it was incredible. It was incredible. Well, that incredible. was unbelievable. I at, right at midnight when he comes out and he says, "We're going to come and play for you again," and he sings his little Cubs song. And the next thing you know, yeah. And first of all, none of us could believe that Ernie Banks was even awake that late at night. But <laughs> but he was up on stage with Eddie Vedder and the whole thing. And and I have to tell you. I don't know if this will matter to you or not. Maybe it will matter to Eddie. I grew up in St. Louis, so I'm a diehard Cardinal fan. You know, to me, the Cubs are like the the, the all-time enemy. Um, you know, and I go into Wrigley Field every time and have to, you know, like sprinkle the special cannabis <laughs> sauce on my head to make it safe for me. Um, but, you know, I love Ernie Banks. He's an icon. How can you not? And, uh, you know, it, look, Eddie, is he's just like one of the – I love these guys who are, you know, they're famous. They do their thing, but they're just like the rest of us in that they have these undying sports loyalties – and, you know, good for him. He, you know, he had it and he got to see him win, which, you know, nobody ever would have imagined that anybody would ever get to see the Cubs win. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it all worked out. It was pretty, pretty great. And that, yeah, but that night was, um, it was, it was one of the first times we did a, you know, a big serious remote. It was outside for two hours before the show doing a pre-show. We didn't broadcast the show. And then we had all these plans to do this big post-show thing from, one of the up upstairs backstage rooms or whatever and you know that got canned immediately we we did this recap where it's like you know it may, may have been 15 minutes i'm completely out of my mind it's two in the morning it was like just the whole thing was just such an experience and i think uh and i i don't i maybe they, they've never the fact that they've never released it makes me question if it ever really even happened well, I, except that I found it on YouTube, right? Cause, I I mean, you know, the, the other thing they did that night that I had completely forgotten about was that they did a cover of Pink Floyd's Mother, which was yeah, they do that a lot, and they've been doing they've been doing comfortably numb recently too, which is off the charts. Well, we I, and I was telling you, I just saw Eddie in his um, uh, solo band was it the Earthlings down in uh, Earthlings San Diego uh, uh, it, it, right at the end of February on a makeup show uh, from his little tour that he did out there. That's an incredible. I mean, I have to tell you, with all due respect to John Mayer, who I like, you know, they could have pulled Eddie Veteran to be in Dead and Company. He's got that energy. He's got that power. <laughs> I mean, this guy just plays all night. He, I mean, he he could have done it just as. A, when I see him, it feels like I'm seeing the dead. You know, the energy they bring, and they just keep. Really, another song. Oh my goodness! Look at how late it is, and they they just keep rolling along. It's great. Yeah, that's the thing. It's their energy is unparalleled. Truly one of the greatest rock bands out there. Can't wait for this tour coming up. Starts May 3rd in San Diego. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. 
Well, Rob, the problem is, is that we're running out of time and I could sit here and talk to you all night, um, but I'm sure you have far more important things to do in the world of uh, deadheads and music and stuff like that. So we, we absolutely thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, any parting words for your fans out there? Uh, just uh, smoke them if you got them and God, it's all over the place. So you really should have them. A- amen to that brother and everybody please make sure if you're not you've got to be listening uh, at least three times a day to Sirius XM in my part of the world it's channel 23 uh, they, they they drop three shows every day and you get to hear Rob's uh, great voice leading you in and telling you all about it and, and taking you out afterwards and you know kind of helping you break it down and uh, you know, like I said to him, I, you know, I even ran into a little bit of trouble with my wife because, you know, you play these shows and I'll be listening to them on my way home and I get into my park, my driveway and I can't get out of the car because the, the jam is too good. You know, you, you just have a habit of picking ones I like to listen to. Also, same thing right next door on Channel 22 on Pearl Jam Radio doing three concerts a day as well. You're a busy man. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, on uh, the way out the door, we will leave you with one uh, final uh, moment from... Um, uh, Williamsburg and William and Mary, and that is the uh, deal uh, that they played to close the first set. And, and I love deal, and they could play deal anytime. And I promise you, I'm not going out to take a piss for that. Um, but uh, uh, it, and it, it always sounds great every time. But this is this is one where you know th- these are the little signals to me that Jerry's having a good time. And, and what we've done here is is we've basically just uh, given you the very end of the show because it's 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 come the way the show ends is that you know jerry and at that time with donna will don't you let that deal go down and he'll do that refrain a few times over and over for this night whatever reason man he was out there and 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 by my count there's 36 uh refrains of don't you let that deal go down i invite all of our listeners to listen to see if uh if, if i'm right do you even remember that from that night uh, I just remember at that point in time, they all were sort of off the charts and, you know, except, and you had Weir and Donna, well, Weir going for the super falsetto, you yes. know, like sometimes you would even think it was Donna, but it's actually right. Weir. Right. And yeah, I mean, a 78 deal, usually they're all pretty much off the charts, but this one, especially. Okay. Well, Rob Bleedstein, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Rob Hunt, thank you. We'll have him back next week. Uh, We've got lots of good shows coming up. We hope you will all listen to us as we go forward. Uh, We'll keep an eye on marijuana legalization, but unfortunately, I suspect that Rob Hunt uh, is accurate in his description of what's going down. So... Well, yeah, Grandpa Joe don't like the weed. Yeah, that's that's true. That's very true. Um, so here's uh, the, the closing of deal. Thank you all. Have a great week. Stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.